coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, happy Friday. Has anything happened since the show ended yesterday? Actually, did it happen? Yeah, yeah, it did happen after the show ended. In fact, I, I was sitting at home when uh, the sudden holiday, Indictment Day, popped up on the calendar, and I thought to myself, Self, should I unass this couch and go do the last segment all over again and point out the indictment? And I told myself, Self, you've worked really hard the last few days. Cut yourself some slack. Everybody knows the show's pre-recorded, and they'll get the news. They'll get the news, right? And you did. Yesterday, Donald Trump indicted by a uh, New York grand jury for some fraudulent monetary activities stemming from the hush money payment of one Stormy Daniels. Um, at some point in time, and, and, and believe me, I think I mentioned this earlier this week, I, of all the things that Donald Trump can and will eventually be indicted for, this case to me is the most frivolous. Uh, Folks point to the statute of limitations, but ignore the fact that then-Attorney General Bill Barr suppressed any sort of uh, prosecutory movement on this particular case. So therein lies some of the problem with the statute of limitations. It was the Trump Department of Justice that suppressed a lot of this. That being said, when I say frivolous, I don't mean that he's not guilty. He's, well... A grand jury determined that he should be indicted. They believe he's guilty. They've got the evidence. New York, by the way, is the financial crimes capital. They investigate this stuff pretty thoroughly. Folks on these grand juries know what they're looking at. Uh, District attorneys know what they're prosecuting. So I don't take this lightly. When I say frivolous, I mean, uh, of all the things that Donald Trump can and eventually will be indicted for, this is the one that, like, if you're expecting him to be thrown in jail, that's not going to happen. He'll pay a huge fine if he pays a fine at all. But for the next uh, 14 to 16 months, this case will be in the news, in the headlines. Now that he's been formally indicted, he will be fingerprinted. He will be mugshotted. He will not be handcuffed, however. So that becomes uh, part of the American lexicon. And we've seen how Donald Trump managed to fundraise off of just the potential of being indicted uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, like a million and a half dollars just in the first few days after he said he expected to be indicted sometime soon. Now that he has been formally indicted, you can expect that floodgate to open even further. And the sad slash funny part is it's the folks who can least afford to donate to Donald Trump's <laughs> criminal defense campaign who will be donating to Donald Trump's criminal defense campaign. It's kind of sad, very pathetic. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I just have no respect for folks who are just so easily duped. I have no respect for folks who show up to these rallies head-to-toe in Trump regalia, buying clothing with his likeness on it from him. They, they, it, it, It's like they don't put two and two together. Oh, he's so uh, wealthy, so famous, he's self-made... You are the self-making him with these ridiculous purchases and these donations, et cetera, and so on. I'm still mad, by the way, at NBC, because 
NBC is the reason we still have this boil on America's political ass. I mean, the man was a failed businessman, a con man, going nowhere. It's sort of a a a, a, a joke, really, a punchline to a you know goofy trivia question about the 1980s and 1990s when they decided we want a reality show based on celebrities earning an apprenticeship from some boss CEO. And they found a Donald Trump who needed the money to take the money. And because he acted a role that, let's be honest, he'd been perfecting for years, feeling all self-important and boastful and bossy and in charge. Because of that decision, (laughs) we wound up with this vision of a Donald Trump that wasn't a reality. TV reality shows aren't reality anyway. We should know this by now. And he parlayed that facade into a political movement that became his ascendancy to the highest office in the land. It's NBC's fault. But it's also the duped Americans' fault as well. If you are a duped American, if you have been buying his merchandise and showing up at his rallies and voting for him and vehemently supporting him and campaigning on his behalf and contributing to his criminal defense fund, you've been duped. You've been had. You are a rube. I have no respect for your intelligence. None whatsoever. As this goes on, however... I continue to be marveled at how stupid some of the premier names in the Republican Party are for racing to defend him still. People who are running against him actively to be the nominee for the GOP in 2024. Nikki Haley among them. You know, from everything I've seen from this uh, New York um, district attorney is that this would be something he'd be doing for political points. And I think what we know is when you get into political prosecutions like this, it's more about um, revenge than it is about justice. And, you know, I think the country would be better off talking about things that the American public is cares about than to sit there and have to deal with some revenge by some political people in New York. First of all, what what sort of revenge is Alvin Bragg trying to exact at Donald Trump? What does Alvin Bragg have uh, axe-wise to grind towards Donald Trump? Or is this just a party thing? Oh, he's a prosecutor and a Democrat who ran for the office to be the lead prosecutor. And so, obviously, that means he's incapable of doing his job if the person indicted is a Republican. Um, again, New York financial crimes haven you got to think a lot of the white-collar financial criminals are probably conservative. But only in this one time, this one time, does Nikki Haley believe that this is about revenge. Never mind the fact that she spoke not one word, not word one, to the case itself or the innocence or guilt or any of the points that will come out in the near in the near future when the indictment is unsealed. 
You know what? It, the rate I'm going, it'll probably be unsealed as this show airs and uh, long after I've you know put these pieces together. <laughs> Nonetheless, she didn't speak a word to the case itself or Donald Trump's innocence or guilt. Nikki's running against Donald Trump for the nomination in 2024. Of course, she was also right there bootlicking amongst his cabinet members, his administration when she was the uh, Secretary to the United Nations on behalf of the United States. Former Secretary of Defense Mike Pompeo also running for president. The GOP nomination, formally running against Donald Trump. Tweets, the Manhattan DA is undermining American confidence in our legal system. Is he though? Isn't the the, the lack of confidence in America's legal system steeped in, rooted in the fact that the little guy never gets away with squat, the well-heeled, well-connected guy always does? Don't you think that has some cause for erosion of America's confidence in our legal system, Mike? He continues to tweet, Bragg is the same Soros-funded, and by the way, do this as a drinking game. <laughs> When the Sunday talk shows start, just go ahead and have your, uh, <laughs> I know it's a little early, right? But some of us are going to, you know, brunch a little early. Go ahead and have the mimosas on standby and take a sip every time somebody says Soros funded. Bragg is the same Soros funded prosecutor who refuses to prosecute violent crimes. There's no evidence of that. And who has downgraded more than half of all felonies to misdemeanors. And no proof. Prosecuting serious crimes keeps Americans safe, but political... Well, hang on. Why is this not a serious crime? Why is fraud not a serious crime? Why is the white-collar moneyed crimes not serious? Letting rich folks get away with fraud, not serious. But a little guy shoplifting, that's serious. Anyway, Mike continues... Prosecuting serious crimes keeps Americans safe, but political prosecutions put the American legal system at risk of being viewed as a tool for abuse. D.A. Bragg, spend taxpayers' money and your energy protecting law-abiding citizens, not playing politics. Ron DeSantis, the only person running for president on the right who's polling above 1%. I don't know why I gave the other two the airspace I did, but I did. Anyway, Ron DeSantis, who is... uh, actually trailing Trump and falling further behind the GOP. They're the law and order party. I have to remind myself that the law and order party. Anyway, Ron DeSantis tweets the weaponization of the legal system to advance a political agenda turns the rule of law on its head. This is un-American. He says, um, Bill Barr was essentially Donald Trump's personal attorney while the U S attorney general who suppressed this very case in and of itself. But we want to talk about political agendas being advanced in the legal system. He continues, the, take a sip, Soros-backed Manhattan district attorney has constantly bent the law to downgrade felonies and to excuse criminal misconduct. By, by the way, major city crime in this country is on the decline. They would have you believe that the major cities are just these lawless refuges where uh, bandits are just rolling around the streets and causing harm and mayhem, and the DAs are letting them off. I mean, Fonnie Willis is prosecuting gangs right now, and she's using rap lyrics to pull it off. You can't get much more tough on crime, and actually, that sounds like a dream for the modern conservative, right? Yeah, use the hip-hop lyrics. Go after the gangs. 
Uh, anyway, DeSantis continues. Uh, the Soros-backed Manhattan District Attorney constantly bent the law to downgrade felonies, yet now he is stretching the law, stretching the law, to target a political opponent. Florida will not assist in an extradition request given the questionable circumstances at issue with this Soros-backed, take a sip, Manhattan prosecutor and his political agenda. I love that that, that DeSantis isn't going to assist with the extradition request. Uh, I don't know that Alvin Bragg has asked Florida to, but DeSantis is willing to use Florida taxpayer money to fly uh, asylum seekers and migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, which, by the way, in case you're not a geography wonk, Texas and Florida don't even touch one another. There's like three states between them. Uh, the flight path from Texas to Martha's Vineyard doesn't even fly over any of Florida whatsoever. I mean, I guess you could make that curve if you want, but it doesn't. All right, I'm running up against a break, but I have more thoughts and disappointment in the party that professes to be all about law and order. Back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show. It is Friday. It is... Uh Indictment season, apparently. I'm just sort of marveling as we pay attention to how the GOP is reacting, like in lockstep. And we're more than two years past the January 6th insurrection. I mean, Lindsey Graham has gone from... Uh, Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it then this way. Oh my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. To last night on Fox News. How do you do it? You take a, well, if you got a pile of crap and you chop it up 34 times, it's still a pile of crap. It's duplicious charging. They're trying to smear the guy. They're trying to take cases that nobody else would take and resurrect them. This is literally legal voodoo. Speaking of Fox News, of course, Laura Ingram has her spin on things. Go back and read Lincoln's second inaugural address. Now, in the midst of an actual bloody civil war, now, after that, was his speech all about vengeance? Putting Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis in jail? Hell no. It was about how we as a nation needed to come together. It was about reconciliation. I, I, I have to point something out to her, however. Jefferson Davis actually was in prison for more than two years. In fact, he was initially imprisoned in uh, what Britannica calls a damp casemate at Fort Monroe, Virginia, and was put in leg irons. Britannica continues, Though outraged northern public opinion brought about his removal to healthier quarters, Davis remained a prisoner under guard for two more years. From our friends at Media Matters for America, Kat Abu uh, posted this to TikTok, and if you (laughs) work in state or federal government, you probably can't see this on your phone, so I'll just play it for you. Uh, She's covering the Fox meltdown of the Donald Trump indictment. Here we go. If you don't watch Fox News, here are five highlights from last night's complete meltdown over the Trump indictment. There were times last night when I genuinely thought people were going to cry. I'm not exaggerating. If you had zero context, you would have thought somebody died. Give the president some money to fight this bullshit. 
Looking a little emotional. I feel the same way. My heart is broken. I had some tears yeah. in my eyes. Some hosts tried to spin the indictment into a good thing. Watch Pete Hegseth really overestimate Donald Trump's cool factor. If there's a mugshot of Donald Trump, it'll be in dorm rooms and on t-shirts. And it gets dumber. Ah. Here's Greg Gutfeld saying that now Donald Trump has street cred. He is an OG. Right, if they give me, I mean, he is a badass if he's got a mugshot. I honestly can't wait for this mugshot to come out because Fox hosts are gonna have to pretend that he's the handsomest man they've ever seen. It's gonna be really fun. Tucker brought Glenn Beck on to talk about the indictment and Beck immediately went off the rails. The Bill of Rights is gone. By 2025, we are going to be at war. We'll have a currency collapse and we will live in a virtual police state. Honestly, I just don't think America <laughs> is efficient enough to get that much done in two years. Denmark maybe, but right. not America. To no one's surprise, the law and order crowd suddenly didn't like law and order. And according to them, grand juries are now Stalin. Stalinization of the American criminal justice system. The type that we normally associate with the Soviet Union. It's like Stalin's purges. But while we all love to make fun of these people, there was a ton of dangerous rhetoric last night. It almost feels like they're pushing the population to react. Basically, it's one party hunting another. It is a war on conservatism and MAGA. They want you to strike out. Donald Trump was indicted by a jury. If anything, this shows that our justice system is still willing to go after the rich and yes, powerful. Exactly. Republicans could have even used this indictment to get rid of the Trump albatross hanging right. around their neck. But instead, they've committed themselves to a guy with 34 counts against him. Yes. People better be careful. And that's all I'll say about that. That last part is what gets me. Kat Abu said what I've been thinking for so long now. When will the GOP take an off-ramp? They've had several off-ramps to get off the Trump freeway, and they just keep driving on by. Gas tanks on E. It's been pegging on E for a while, and they just keep driving on by. What the Trump era should have taught us all by now is that the Republican Party, the conservative movement, has no interest in law and order. They have interest in law and order for petty criminals, particularly those of color, especially if they're in a major city. I mean, they keep harping on city crime and DA is not prosecuting them. But they have absolutely zero interest in going after the rich guy. I mean, in general, nobody has much interest in going after the rich guy. Unless the rich guy rips off another rich guy or gal. Bernie Madoff is the example that comes to mind, right? They were never actually the family values party. They just wanted the family values culture's lockstep vote. And they've gotten it. And Donald Trump didn't lose much of it when he was exposed to be grabbing him by the kitty. To be paying off a porn star. I mean, yeah, there was, I'm sure, a little erosion, but not enough. Not enough to lose the presidency. Not enough for somebody to run against him in the GOP primary season in 2020. In fact, remember, they didn't even hold a platform committee together. They didn't put a platform together. Their platform was Trump 2020. Literally, that's it. That's the GOP platform from 2020. Trump 2020. And laughably, they talk about the weaponization of the legal system after 2016 chance of lock her up. And now we have GOP House-led hearings into Hunter Biden. Have you heard much about Hunter Biden and these hearings, by the way? No, because they're not coming up with anything. But 
suddenly Alvin Bragg in New York and Fonnie Willis in Atlanta, and there'll be other prosecutors who will be launching indictments as well, they're weaponizing the legal system. How about conservatism weaponizing the legal system for so long to disenfranchise scores of voters? Oh, I forgot we can't talk about critical race theory because it might lead someone to think uh, America sucks. Of course, America doesn't suck. But the disenfranchisement of voters due to disparities in law enforcement and the judiciary, oh, now that does suck. The fact that Florida voted to re-enfranchise voters, but Ron DeSantis and the GOP in Florida have been foot-dragging on that and decided, yeah, we don't really care what the voter says. The legal voter, not the folks who lost it, the legal voters in the state of Florida said, yeah, you know, once people have served their time, they should get to vote again. Ron DeSantis and company, in fact, Ron DeSantis sent law enforcement and social media cameras a rolling to show that he was getting folks locked up if they mistakenly thought that they were eligible to vote once they were out of jail or out of prison. That, my friends, is some Stalinist shit. No outrage from the right about that, but the man with 34 counts against him, well, oh my God, it's the weaponization of our justice system. Oh, hey, you're still here. Hey, that's cool. Thanks for sticking around. Not only am I host of The Ron Show, I'm also Ron Roberts, real estate agent slash realtor with eXp Realty. That's right. I help folks buy and sell residential real estate in and around Metro Atlanta. And we've been through a crazy couple of years, have we not? Between COVID, the post-COVID market, the craziness, you could throw an open house on a souped-up tool shed and you would have cars lined around the block to come in and see it and throw an offer well over asking price. Well, those days are no longer a part of us and interest rates are a little higher than they were before. But I must say, it's still a great time to either buy or sell or both real estate, residential real estate in Metro Atlanta. Why buy? I tell tenuous buyers all the time, if you are renting right now, you are paying someone else's retirement accounts your money and it might as well go to you. The cost of housing in Atlanta is not going to get cheaper. The population is going to continue to grow well into the 2040s with nearly a million and a half new residents expected to come here. So you better get a house sooner rather than later. And if you can afford to buy an investment property, now if you already own your home, why not buy one nearby you as well and create some additional income that could be your retirement savings and you get to choose one of your new neighbors. Now, if you're thinking about selling, but you're thinking, oh man, I really missed out on that huge market in the past summer or two. Okay, yeah, sure. But the values aren't dropping. So you still got plenty you've earned just by owning what you're in and need to sell soon. Got questions? Feel free to hit me up. 843-283-0078 or email me ron at rononthereal.com. Georgia MLS 396-720. Website rononthereal.com. That's me, Ron Roberts with EXP Realty. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, let's use this segment to talk about a few things that are happening on the local end. Uh, The mayor of Atlanta, Andre Dickens, joined city council and endorsed the call for an audit of MARTA's uh, Atlanta expansion program. You'll recall a week or so ago, city council called for this audit on the heels of MARTA scaling back their 
broad and ambitious plans that they put before the voters before a special purpose local option sales tax was passed by said voters. So renderings and fantastic plans came back to, hey, I think we're going to throw some new paint on the Five Points Marta Station and uh, we're going to stretch the streetcar to Pont City Market. By the way, I'm for that part. I'm for that part. The Five Points Station um, refurbishing uh, has been a lot less subdued. We're not getting uh, nearly the light speed or high speed rail extensions that were promised. We're getting some uh, bus rapid transit lanes, which I think are just like bus only lane. Anyway, uh, the, the 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 primary areas of, of Atlanta that really rely on mass transit, Southwest Atlanta in particular, are getting completely underserved. And so city council wants to know, why Marta scaling back all these plans? Where the money for that went for the uh, next Marta program, and uh, the uh, Atlanta mayor uh, Andre Dickens spoke out um, in support of their call for that audit. The AJC is reporting today that there was a lot more known about the former staffer's uh, history of speeding before the fatal crash that killed her, Chandler Lacroix. And another uh, uh, UGA, uh, well, a UGA football player, uh, the night after the championship parade in Athens. The article cites weeks before a violent crash rocked the University of Georgia's football program, a team official learned that a staff member had an extensive record of speeding and intervened to minimize her latest citation. Nevertheless, the football program allowed recruiting analyst Chandler LaCroix to continue driving prospective recruits around Athens in university vehicles after she received her fourth speeding ticket in six years on October 30th. On country roads, on city streets, on four-lane highways, the police cited LaCroix 24 each time for driving at least 19 miles over the speed limit. The story goes on. After the latest ticket for driving 77 and a 55, a football team official who frequently intercedes when players get into trouble tried to get LaCroix's penalties reduced in court, an investigation by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution shows. Bryant Gant, the team's director of player support, asked a Morgan County court clerk to amend the ticket to indicate LaCroix was driving only 14 miles over the speed limit, the clerk said. The change would have allowed LaCroix to avoid an added $200 fine under the state's super speeder law, as well as points on her driver's license that could lead to a suspension of her driving privileges. Based on her history, I said no, not at all. The clerk, Shalisa Sanders, said in an interview she didn't qualify for a reduction. Less than three months later, LaCroix's habit for fast driving ended in tragedy. Wow. Uh, that is reporting by Alan Judd at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, by the way. I don't know if you recall uh, when when that story broke after the accident and the AJC started doing some of their own investigative reporting ahead of anything that was coming out officially from police records. Uh, what was it? The, the, the video, the, 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 the camera video that showed uh, LaCroix and three players leaving uh, a local night spot. I believe it was a strip club, if I'm not mistaken. And the outrage from Team... Well, the fan base, the, the UGA fan base. Oh, my gosh, they're trying to portray. Well, I mean, you do have to put a story together, right? It seemed to me that there was more of an interest in protecting the university, or I'm sorry, not the university, but the athletic department from blowback than there was finding out what led to these 
two deaths, these tragic, avoidable deaths that could have been a lot worse than they were. There were there was another passenger in the car. There was uh, Jalen Carter apparently racing uh, that vehicle. Things could have been a lot worse. But I'm going to tell you, this exclusive story from the AJC pointing out to the fact that the athletic department knew LaCroix had a speeding problem and actually sought to intervene to have her charges reduced is a bad look. And trust me, I say this as a Georgia Bulldog fan. My studio has UGA, Atlanta Braves, even some Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta Hawks. Not that they warrant any other space. There's a lot of glory on, on my studio walls celebrating UGA's football legacy, Atlanta Braves World Series titles. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan, but I'm also about accountability. And someone has to be held accountable when there is a systemic failing as appears to have occurred in this situation. Someone died. Two people actually died. And, you know, I hate to tie this to the whole Trump thing, but a culture of permissiveness allows something to get out of control, does it not? Uh, In other regional news, the uh, Georgia Board of Regents uh, voted early today to approve Wellstar Health Systems uh, takeover, well, potential partnership and takeover of Augusta University's hospitals. Wellstar, of course, famously leaving the uh, Atlanta Medical Center, just blocks down from where I live on Boulevard, uh, and the city of Atlanta in a huge lurch when it comes to uh, extensive trauma levels. Now we'll have apparently free reign over Augusta University's hospitals. Now, I grew up in Augusta, and I can tell you, one of the hospitals that, well, the hospital that Augusta University and the Medical College of Georgia, which is part of Augusta University, one of the hospitals they oversee is the former Talmadge Memorial Hospital. Is it still named after Talmadge? I don't know. Um, I mean, he was a segregationist. You would think by now they would have removed the name. Ironically, despite Talmadge being a bit of a racist and quite a segregationist, uh, the uh, preponderance of the patient base at Talmadge is uh, urban, inner city, impoverished. It's 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 the it's the hospital, the free hospital uh, for that region. And I, I just find this an interesting dichotomy here. Uh, Wellstar left serving. Uh, the city of Atlanta and its impoverished community, and now goes to Augusta, where it's going to be tasked with serving its indigent healthcare population. But also, they got the carrot dangled in front of them of, ah, you can now build a hospital in neighboring Columbia County, the suburban, the larger of the suburban counties outside Augusta, uh, Georgia. And understand, I can tell you, again, as, as a native Augustan, Augusta's not an under-hospitaled uh, region. Outside the, 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 the city core, eh, there's a different story to be told. There is a hospital in Aiken, uh, South Carolina. Uh, there is, uh, I think it's Piedmont now runs, Piedmont, Piedmont runs uh, University Hospital downtown. Uh, I forget what, what it's called now, but St. Joseph's Hospital was sort of further west. Uh, the medical college, uh, AU, Augusta University Medical Center, 
uh, downtown. There's also a Veterans Administration hospital downtown. Also, the hospital on Fort Gordon, Eisenhower Army Medical Center. Yeah, I mean, there's you reel off a lot of hospital names for a, for a market the size of Augusta's. And uh, now Wellstar will uh, allegedly get to tap into some fertile ground uh, in neighboring Columbia County with its population of more than 100,000 residents. I have to, by the way, commend uh, Mark Neese and uh, Maya, uh, Maya Prabhu and, and James Salzer for this piece they wrote in the AJC. The headline is one that grabbed me because I thought it was an opinion piece. And damn, here's the headline. A banner year for Georgia legislature telling people what to do. Remember now, we live in a conservative-run state, and limited government is what they're all about, except when they want to ban cities from uh, banning gas leaf blowers and gas stoves, which there's no record of any city doing that anyway. Uh, Anyway, they point that out, and then they say in the space of fewer than three hours Monday, the Georgia House voted to ban cities from banning gas leaf blowers and gas stoves. What, What is the right's fascination with gas stoves here lately? Uh, let's see. The Georgia House voted to make cities enforce ordinances against sleeping on or obstructing sidewalks. Well, if you want to camp out for concert tickets or that, that big college basketball game, apparently now cities are going to have to enforce ordinances. Maybe they can use gas leaf blowers to blow you away. Uh, the Georgia House also voted to create a state board with powers to investigate, punish, or even oust locally elected district attorneys. Like, I don't know, Fonnie Willis, who might be investigating a certain... GOP cult hero. Uh, the story goes on to say, a few hours later in the same chamber, on the lengthy 39th day of the 40 day session, representatives voted to make it a felony for local governments to accept private money to help pay for extra staff and facilities at election time. The spurt of votes highlighted one of the trends of this and many recent lawmaking sessions. Legislative majorities, currently Republicans, are for local control and personal freedoms. Until they're not. When they don't like what local officials are doing or industry lobbyists warn of problems, they act, sometimes quickly. Democrats weren't all that different when they were in charge. Again, in Georgia, Democrats, when in charge, were conservatives, but whatever. Story goes on. Uh, When it comes to government power, the General Assembly runs Georgia with the authority to override cities, overrule cities and counties at will, while also taking away individual decisions, such as a parent's ability to seek medical treatments for children to align with their gender identity, as it did this session. Local control, the concept that governing is best handled by elected officials closest to the people they govern, is one of the most frequently spoken phrases in every General Assembly session. The notion that state government should stay out of local decisions and the federal government should stay out of the state's business is a cornerstone of legislative politics, and dare I say, conservative ideology. But city, county, and school lobbyists spend much of every session playing defense as lawmakers seek to right wrongs they, and sometimes their constituents, see in local governments. This is like the friendliest way to call out conservative hypocrisy I've ever seen written in the AJC. We'll share that in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Hey, don't just listen to The Ron Show, support The Ron Show. If you and your business would like to have your advertising done on this show, you know, it's pretty easy. You can drop me an email, ron at ronshowatl.com. You can also call me anytime you like, 404-919-2725. You can also just be a listener if you don't have a business. I mean, that would be most of you, right? Follow us on your preferred podcast platform by following any of the links we've got provided for you there on the podcast tab at ronshowatl.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, links there for you as well. 
Final segment for the week and the day. It's the Friday Run Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Or maybe you're listening on your podcast platform. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, you know what? Since it's the last segment, I'm going to start this segment by doing something I don't often do. I agreed with Eric Erickson on something he was going off about earlier this week. And I didn't really have a chance to get around to it. But we live in the city with the world's busiest airport. And I think this is something that's sort of topical. And you know what? I have a lot of friends who are uh, in the flight industry, whether they're pilots or uh, flight attendants or work ticketing, uh, customer service. Oh, I should mention, by the way, my my dear friend Rick passed away uh, last weekend. He'd been uh, battling an illness for a while. And last time I saw him was St. Patrick's Day for lunch. And he he ate healthy and heartily. And I thought, oh, man, he's turning a corner. Did not turn out to be the case. Uh, he part of my, my Friday lunch group and had lunch today with the group. And it just uh, it just felt odd. Going to miss Rick. Now, anyway, uh, he, he one of those that worked in the uh, airline industry himself. So this all stemmed from an article that was in the New York Post. The headline, I refuse to swap plane seats. So a mom could sit with their toddler. Hell to the no. <sighs> First of all, why would you want to sit next to the toddler? I don't get I don't get that. If that's the premise. Or maybe, maybe let me dive into the article a little bit. An angry traveler has shared their frustrations over a woman who had the quote audacity to request a seat swap so she could sit next to her kid. In a resurfaced Reddit post now going viral. The flummoxed flyer said it was, quote, not my problem, they didn't book together, when asked to switch seats. The unidentified traveler was on a trans-Pacific flight from Japan, sitting in a window seat while the toddler was in the middle seat. Okay, yeah, why would you want to stay next to the toddler? Anyway, the tot's mom was in the row directly behind them, also seated in the middle. Uh, The person said, she asked me, and just me, to switch with her so she could have my window seat next to her daughter, and I'd take her middle seat a row back. The user wrote, hell to the f- no. The peeved passenger continued in the post, worse is we were surrounded by others from her tour group that she could have asked for a three-way trade instead or the tour operator. What is a three-way trade? The audacity to ask just me and expect an inferior trade on my side. People in the comments were divided over whether the user made the best decision. Uh, One person who described themselves as a parent of a toddler expressed shock that the original poster would prefer to sit next to, quote, someone else's unaccompanied toddler instead of moving. See, I'm right there with you. Why would you want to stay there? I mean, I know it's a trans-Pacific flight. It's a long flight. But being in the window seat, uh, first of all, flying is not luxurious glory to begin with, unless you get one of those little booths with the little reclining chair. I mean, it's just not. If you're sitting in a window seat or a middle seat, your life kind of sucks. You got to climb over at least two people to get up and go to the bathroom or to just get up and stretch your legs or whatever. So I, I... People who think that they're paying extra for a window seat to what? Gawk at the clouds to see the landing before everybody else notices it? I don't get it. It's just it's just not a thing for me. I mean, I guess it's nice to have that wall to lean against when you're falling asleep, maybe. But 
So anyway, uh, this this wound up something that Eric Erickson was not only uh, bloviating about on his show, but he tweeted about it as well. And he, he says, I actually do think if the airlines don't fix this, Congress needs to step in. I shouldn't have to pay more to sit with my kids, and a stranger shouldn't have to sit next to a kid separated from his or her parents. It's unfair to everyone involved. Holy f***ing I agree with Eric Erickson. How about that for some harmony, y'all? See, if you don't fly, maybe you don't understand this. When you go to book your flight, and look, I tend to I tend to book the cheap airlines just because, I mean, it's just me and a bag, usually just one bag if I'm flying to Fort Lauderdale or something like that. I can get on Spirit dirt cheap. Well, it used to be dirt cheap and fly down there and, you know, with a backpack that could be my, you know, carry-on item. And I'd be just fine. I don't care where I sat. It's a short flight anyway. Uh, I've got a wedding to go to in the Dominican Republic in November, and I'm just waiting on the discount airline fares to hit for November. I think they only go like six months out, so I'm a little ways off still. But I'm just waiting on Southwest or Frontier to tell me how cheap it's going to be to go to the Dominican Republic. And I'll pay a little extra for 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 the suitcase, whatever, you know. But it's just me. So I tend to fly cheap anyway. But one of the things that I don't do is I don't pick my seat right away. Because they want money. They want extra money for you to pick your seat. And if you're a parent with kids, you're going to have to pick all of your seats, right? Why? Why? If you're buying a group of four or five or three tickets, shouldn't the three tickets just be automatically grouped together? I mean, they should, right? Or maybe, maybe, dare I say, Southwest just has it right all along. Like, nobody gets seated in a specific seat until... Everybody shows up at the airport and checks in, and then the the folks who do the seating assignments know who's there and can kind of play Tetris with the grid. (laughs) Anyway, just my two cents. I actually agree with Eric Erickson on something. Go figure. Uh, Today, the last day of March, March 31st. It is the last day of March, right? Yeah, March 31st. So the final day of Women's History Month. And uh, I've spent some time on each show spotlighting some important women in history, some important moments in women's history. This one's important. The National Council of Women of the U.S. was organized by Susan B. Anthony, Clara Barton, who are they? Julia Ward Howe and Sojourner Truth. Lightweights, right? Anyway, if you're going to have a Mount Rushmore of women's rights, those are the, those are the women, among others. In 1888, the National Council of Women of the U.S. was organized on this date, the oldest, still, non-sectarian women's organization in the United States. It was on today's date, 1988, that Toni Morrison won a Pulitzer Prize for her novel, Beloved. And Muriel Hazel Wright was an American teacher, historian, and writer about the Choctaw Nation. She wrote several books about Oklahoma and was unofficially called Historian of Oklahoma. Muriel Hazel Wright, born on this day. As I I said at the end of Black History Month, and we carried out the same assignment on the show, I really enjoyed learning throughout Women's History Month all of the important women just on those key dates. I mean, bearing in mind, that's just 31 days out of a calendar of 365 that we could continue learning about impactful women throughout history. The same can be said uh, about Black History as well. Uh, however, if I if I grabbed a if I grabbed a designation from each month and then started talking about all of those moments in history, that would be the entire podcast. And maybe that should be a podcast. Hmm. Uh, suffice to say, that's not going to be this podcast. But I do appreciate you listening to the Ron Show, whether you do that on the America One Radio app or AmericaOneRadio.com, 
or whatever preferred podcast platform you prefer to listen to your podcast on. I thank you for following the show on that podcast platform. And if you're listening on America One Radio and you're going, I didn't know this was on a podcast platform. Well, it is. And if you like listening to the show uh, or this show or any show on podcast platforms, well, by all means, please add this show to your preferred podcast platform. I think you can like it, favorite it, or however you do it on whatever platform you do it on. I've got all the podcast links and past show audio as well at ronshowatl.com. Listen, have a great weekend. Back here Monday. See you then.